Harvard Divinity School. Decolonizing Religion and the Practice of Peace, January 25th, 2024. One of the great, one of the great things about having an event early in the term is that you get to greet people after uh, long absences. So uh, I'm delighted that people are doing that, but I am going to ask us now to please settle in. I want to start because my introductions alone can take up 45 minutes of our time. Uh, I'm so excited. Um, I'm Diane Moore, and I'm the Associate Dean of Religion and Public Life here. Um, and on behalf of my wonderful friend and colleague, Hilary Rantisi, who's the Associate Dean of Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative under RPL, we want to welcome you to Decolonizing Religion and Peacebuilding with our beloved friend and colleague, Italia Omer. This book is just a, a milestone and a really uh, important contribution to religious studies and peacebuilding and the cross-disciplinary work that uh, Professor Omer has been involved in for so many years. And it is just a delight for us to be able to host this conversation. And thank you all for, for coming during a busy time of the year. Before I uh, introduce Professor Omer, I want to just say thank you to our wonderful colleagues at Religion and Public Life, Rochelle Sway, Tammy Liao, Rima Tassi, Natalie Campbell, who have done all the background work. It takes so much work to do the what appears to be on the outset a simple event. It's never simple. I just want to thank you all for all the work you do for us uh, in support of this important work. And of course, our wonderful Bob DeVoe, who just shows up everywhere to, um, to videotape this experience so that others who aren't able to be with us uh, are able to see and experience this important conversation. So Professor Omer is, uh, for us, a senior fellow uh, for the Religion and Public Life and a T.J. Dermot Dumphy Visiting Professor of Religion, Violence, and Peacebuilding here at Harvard Divinity School. She has been a uh, colleague with, for, and with and for us for the last five years to really build out our Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative with our special case study in Israel-Palestine, which is one of her many areas of expertise. Uh, along with, uh, when she's not with us, which we wish it was uh, uh, fewer, less time than it is, but when she's not with us, she actually has another job <laughs> somewhere else. Uh, she is professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. She earned her PhD in religion, ethics, and politics here at Harvard University in 2006. Um, and her research focuses on religion, violence, and peace building, Palestine, Israel, Jewish studies, decoloniality, and religion, and religion and politics. In 2017, she was awarded a prestigious Andrew Carnegie Fellow uh, fellowship. And the result of that fellowship is the book we're here to celebrate today. I'm going to, I am going to highlight a few other, the other uh, publications that Professor Omer has uh, authored because you'll see an important pattern, not only of consistency, but of the depth of theoretical and methodological scholarship that she has been engaged in now for, uh, for, for uh, years and years and has contributed to uh, deepening in profound ways the study of religion itself in these intersecting areas. So her uh, first book, When Peace is Not Enough, How the Israeli Peace Camp Thinks About Religion, Nationalism, and Justice, uh, was building off of her dissertation here at Harvard. 
Uh, and this particular volume examines, that was published by University of Chicago Press in 2015. That volume examines the way the Israeli peace camp addresses interrelationships between religion, ethnicity, and nationality, and how it interprets justice vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian conflict. This work scrutinizes the visions of peace and visions of citizenship articulated by a wide spectrum of groups ranging from Zionist to non-Zionist and secular to religious orientations. Her second solo authored book is entitled Days of Awe, Reimagining Jewishness and Solidarity with Palestinians, published by University of Chicago Press in 2019. And this volume explores why divergencies in conceptions of national identity between, quote, homeland and, quote, diaspora could facilitate the prolifer proliferation of loci of analysis and foci of peace-building efforts which are yet underexplored both in peace studies and specific scholarship addressing the relations between dias diasporas and conflict. She has also edited and co-edited multiple volumes, including the Oxford Handbook of Religion, Conflict, and Peacebuilding, uh, published by Oxford in 2015. She's published articles in, among other venues, the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, the Journal of Religious Ethics, Soundings, an interdisciplinary journal, the Journal of Political Theology. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna keep going because the series, so this will be the 15 minute extra that I was talking about. Let me say um, in closing though, I've always joked with uh, Professor Omer to say that for her to do even what she does with us, let alone what she does at Notre Dame and in other venues of her life, including being a very active and proud mother and actually has a life outside of uh, the academy. I think even what she does with us requires at least 12 heads that she seems to uh, uh, pull on and uh, engage simultaneously. So it is with uh, great pleasure and a wonderful personal honor to welcome you here to celebrate this important accomplishment. And please give a warm welcome to Professor Italia Omer. Thank you. Thank you, Diane, and all the amazing people in the religion and public life um, program. And it's always um, home for me to be here. Um, so I'm really honored and thankful uh, that you created the space and the time in your busy days um, to come um, engage um, with the book and with the, uh, this research and to, to just be here. Um, so, uh, so let me start with a story that I discussed in the book. Uh, so in June 2019, in Cagayan de Oro, in Mindanao, in the Philippines, I met a Catholic priest named Father Chito, or at least this is how he was known, who had been sent to Marawi uh, in Mindanao to promote interreligious peace decades before the um, really devastating siege of uh, 2017. 117 days uh, of that siege he had spent as a hostage together with 100 others in the basement of the Bato Mosque, which served as the headquarters of the insurgent operation of a group kind of uh, tangentially associated with um, Abu Sayyaf. Throughout his captivity, Father Chito found himself in a complicated relationship with his captors as he dined with and prayed for them and with them. To survive, he even helped make bombs 
as they all, captors and hostages, endured aerial bombardment by the US-backed and assisted uh, governmental forces of Duterte. When I met Father Chito in what turned out to be the last year of his life, he served as the chairman of the board of interfaith leaders of uh, Pakigdait, uh, which is Tagalog, Tagalog for peace. Uh, it's an interfaith grassroots peace-building organization. Uh, the organization Pakidat focuses on conflict transformation, peace advocacy, interfaith dialogue, cultural sensitivity, and peace-anchored community development in, in northern Mindanao. Father Chito is prominently featured in the work of Pakidat as he made his way in the months following his captivity in Marawi through violence-affected spots in Mindanao, bringing together the military and the uh, um, MILF, the uh, Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and embodying, as he understood it, um, and talked about it uh, with me and others, the, uh, the meaning of forgiveness and the overcoming of divisions uh, for the sake of peace. So I just have a few uh, images to kind of capture uh, 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 Father Chito is in the center with the beard, so very not. Um, and these are some of the other people, um, leaders, religious leaders, engage in this kind of work uh, in the violence-affected areas in Mindanao. Um, this is one of the uh, kind of activities in uh, camps of rebels, uh, engaging uh, the different uh, what they call sectors. Um, here is again, again with the kind of like the colorful socks <laughs> um, in uh, what is called the series of listening sec uh, sessions with um, sectors. So you have the women's sector, youth, and so you have kind of the language of sectors very much operative in those processes of listening and really trying to, uh, a lot of what they were doing is trying to get uh, some of the tensions and the hostility and the, uh, the poten potentiality for violence um, uh, redirected and let people, give people opportunity to talk about their, their fears of the other. And so those sessions were created. And, and part of, the, of, the, of those leaders uh, showing up together, uh, representing different positionalities, just in a very obvious way, is to kind of, in a sense, do um, uh, perform performance of uh, being able to, 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 uh, to show the possibility of being together in, in those difficult moments. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll go to the next slide in a second. Uh, so, but, but in this context, we have larger intergovernmental or global organizations uh, that often sponsor such, such activities that those images capture a little bit of. Um, th those are efforts to kind of like shuttle interfaith actors across Mindanao, which defines interreligious and intercultural praxis in Mindanao. And this has functioned both as a survival mechanism with, um, in a sense, real opening toward rewriting scripts for Mindanao, um, and also as an instrument or in, uh, instrument of what I call in the book, the harmony business that relies on people's really, truly amazing capacity to survive uh, and through relationship building uh, on the kind of the level horizontal level, and what is called in uh, kind of the language of peace studies, uh, elicitive conflict resolution methodologies, uh, meaning elicitive going from the ground up, um, rather than structural changes or top-down and policies um, of historical repair 
uh, ensure one another's security and livelihood, thereby confirming the presumed effectiveness of the harmony business, even if, uh, if it functions to maintain the status quo. So uh, this slide uh, shows what elicitive methodologies in practice where the communities get together. These are people representing different um, um, uh, uh, different communities, so Muslims, Christians, uh, indigenous people, uh, Lumad, and they, um, they get together in one space, and this is kind of coordinated, and there is a lot of investment, programmatic investment in those kind of uh, 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 moments, and they do kind of, they trace, they, they do conflict analysis of who, wh wh what is the conflict, how are we going to navigate it, how are we going to, um, um, uh, to, uh, to resolve the conflict, and so it's articulated as elicitive, as bottom-up, and, and it's kind of like, articulated then by um, various like granting organizations and so forth as, look, this is, we are ceding authority to the local. We are, we are not dictating uh, to the local how to do, how to resolve and analyze their own, uh, their own conflicts. So this is another, um, uh, another e example. Uh, but, but the book as a whole grapples with kind of the paradox of how many of the people that I met, how they talk about their experiences within those programmatic spaces, and then how those uh, activities and, and practices are co-opted into a broader kind of global designs and, and, and global agenda that replicates um, colonial dynamics. So Decolonizing Religion and Peacebuilding, the book, uh, is based on extensive empirical research of inter and intra-religious peace-building practices, in, uh, specifically in Kenya and the Philippines. Um, and as um, uh, Professor Moore mentioned, um, uh, I, uh, I was awarded a Carnegie grant uh, that enabled me uh, to, to, to go on kind of repeated uh, trips to these two regions. I met with 250 people in Mindanao. Uh, these meet meetings included 20 focus groups uh, with key participants in various programs encompassing religious leaders and professionals in civil society spaces of intra and interreligious dialogue and peace education. In Kenya, I interviewed 150 people. I conducted six focus groups with women, youth, and religious leaders or clerics and clerics. Um, the interviews focused on multiple actors in the religious field, including um, what is called preventing or countering violent extremism spaces and interreligious dialogue. I uh, also engaged civil society actors working on questions of corruption, devolution, uh, gender justice, poverty, marginalization, and other key areas of concern that um, are kind of articulated in the civil society spaces. Further, I had access to additional focus groups um, uh, with key participants in, in what is called dialogues of action, which means dialogue for implementing common good projects. Such projects include building wells or building a footbridge uh, to ensure that kids don't drown as they, when they go to school. Uh, public bathrooms or reducing instances of um, child marriage in Malindi in, um, uh, on the coast of Kenya. And so I was able to triangulate all this data, uh, which helps to kind of offer um, a critical mass of testimonies illuminating uh, religion's global relevance uh, to peace building slash development, and part of what I trace in the book is the synergies and the convergence of peace building practices and development, whatever development is, well, of course, it has a really um, uh, a lot of kind of colonial baggage with it. 
Um, so as political theorist Cecilia Lynch identified neoliberalism and Islamophobic securitization discourse have underpinned the subfield of religion and peace building, especially in the aftermath of September 11, 2001. The intersection of an Islamophobic security discourse and development praxis, thereby securitizing what is called quote unquote development, so uh, understood as you know, maybe ensuring that people have you know, food, um, uh, this has also coalesced with other adjacent subfields uh, and their respective discovery also of religion as uh, something that you know, needs to be taken into account. Um, and, but, but there is kind of a binary, religion is understood and interpreted through a binary uh, prism as either a force to contain uh, when it's bad, uh, and destructive or a force to mobilize and a word that I kept hearing, harness uh, when good or potentially good or useful. The securitizing of development also points to the um, uh, intersection of peace building and development and uh, which previously were siloed, as I said, in international praxis. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, and this is shown uh, that the effort to synergize uh, what is called development praxis and peace building praxis is really captured in them um, um, explicitly in the UN 2030 agenda uh, and the, the 17 sustainable development goals that were ratified in 2015. And I zoom in on the, uh, the two uh, sustainable development goals on goal 16 and goal 17 in the book. Goal 16 captures the synergies of peace building into um, a development paradigm. And critically, goal 17 captures another neoliberal uh, concept of local partnership. Here I put uh, for a moment my hat um, as a scholar in peace research. So since the 1990s um, and the utter failure of top-down peace building uh, missions, one can trace a growing recognition of the need to engage quote unquote local actors and gain their buy-in, which is another um, kind of neoliberal devolutionary concept. Uh, and so this instrumentalist recognition generated a kind of a fashion, a fad in peace theory and practice known as the local turn, which since the 1990s especially also, of, of course it's also produced a critique uh, that I would happily discuss in the Q&A if anyone is interested. Uh, the important point for me to highlight now is that the quote-unquote local turn converge with the post-secular discourse that deemed religion as um, uh, useful um, uh, and not as previously uh, uh, kind of overlooked resource, a capital. This is where the kind of the neoliberal discourse and rationality plays in. It's something, it's something to be moved here or there. Uh, so it's a resource, it's a capital, soft power. Those are some of the kind of uh, um, uh, uh, prisms through which we can think of how the kind of the religion factor uh, uh, became integrated. Um, and, um, uh, and so we have all of a sudden in, within that context and within this notion of partnership, the discourse of partnership, um, we have something called religious, the religious actor uh, that, uh, that comes to the, to the foreground. And the quote unquote religious actor is, uh, is found in a place called the local. Uh, of course, we can devote much time and space, and, uh, and I do in the book, 
uh, to problematizing the assumption that there is a place called local that is distinct from another place called the international community uh, with all the normativity that that place kind of uh, connotes. Uh, similarly, critics of, of secular teleology uh, give us tools to deconstruct reductive accounts of the religious act or what exactly, what is religious action exactly uh, is distinct from other kind of actions. Nevertheless, the local turn discourse in conjunction with the syner um, synergies of peace building and development praxis, and of course those synergies mean also a lot of money and investment and there is a lot of power behind it. It's not just language and words. Um, and the securitizing discourse of religion qua Islam led to a post-secular investment, as I said, in religion as a peace building slash development instrument that perpetuates itself through measurable, tangible, deliverable. And the notion of the measurability is very important. Uh, Interreligious peace building work is only uh, observable and can be invested in, and investment can be renewed if you have something tangible that can be measured, like building a whale or building a footbridge. Um, and so the issue of measurability is, is really key and really illuminates the kind of the neoliberal underpinning of, of this. So, um, so the synergies of peace building and development focus on the local leverage religion as, uh, as a form to securitize, quote unquote, at risk demographics and facilitate constructive intercommunal work, especially focusing on economic survival or, or what are called livelihood projects um, without redressing structural and historical legacies. I trace in the book the deployment of religion within the framework of development slash peace building as an especially effective technology and instrument of peace as pacification, consistent with the colonial deployment of religion to divide, dominate, and conquer. I therefore examine through uh, a decolonial prism how interreligious peace building practices enhance neocolonial violent legacies and to what extent such practices expose decolonial religio-cultural peace building agency and opening in the two places that are deeply, deeply marked uh, by ongoing colonial legacies and scars, which is Kenya and Mindanao. So the first four chapters of the book interrogate <clears throat> what it means to do religion in peace building and development with a particular focus on typologies of religious actors, including technocratic religious actors within the religious business, the harmony business, which instrumentalizes local religious actors and the dynamics that, uh, that go into generating a form of piety, uh, which I call in the book survival piety within a neoliberal frame. Uh, chapters five and six focus on the securitization discourse and its cross-fertilization with development praxis. And the final two chapters examines where the lived realities on the ground of the friendships formed in and through programmatic spaces, like we saw in those images of Father Chito, uh, exceed where the, I kind of identify and grappled with, really, uh, with uh, the moments and, and, and spaces where uh, the relationships, the actual relationship that formed exceed the decolonial gaze and offer glimpses into decolonial potentialities. So Kenya and the Philippines are infinitely 
more complex than I can uh, 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 represent here. Uh, and the book is really about the harmony business. I, uh, I'm not an expert in, in either case. Uh, so I approached the, the research with kind of um, my, 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 uh, my long study of religion, violence, and peace building, and try to think about it uh, uh, from, from this uh, positionality. Each of these cases, Kenya and, and um, the Philippines, involves different dynamics of minori minoritizing Muslims and recasting local uh, and historical conflicts in civilizational, decontextualized terms as part of the governments, the respective governments in each place, integration and or co-optation into a global infrastructure of the so-called uh, global war on terror. So um, I, uh, in what follows, I'll just briefly uh, touch on the case of Mindanao, just to give a sense. Uh, um, and my analysis, my analysis regarding the Philippines revolves around the axis of the Moro conflict on the island of Mindanao. The Philippines epitomizes the enduring centrality of land thefts and legacies of marginalizing IPs or in, uh, indigenous peoples. These are called IPs in that context, and specifically LUMAD and Muslim populations. And in, in order to understand contemporary dynamics of the conflict, uh, religious and communal identities themselves do not constitute the sources, the source or the root of the conflict in Mindanao, rather enduring systemic inequalities and discrimination and land thefts uh, against Muslims and Lumen, um, uh, Lumad uh, inhabitants of Mindanao. And that was combined with Manila's settlement policies of channeling Christian settlers to the southern islands, which is called in that context domestic colonization. This uh, domestic uh, um, colonization and all these other factors transformed the demographics of the island. So this is the minoritization. And the fallacy of religion and peace praxis is that it glosses over the histories and structural forms of violence, spiritualizing and psychologizing peace building as the project of overcoming stereotyping and hatred as if religious cultural difference is the root of the violence. Um, so, so, so this is kind of like the tension that needs to be, uh, to be navigated and understand how religion can be constructive in this context, or, and, and to what degree it's being co-opted and, and only deepen kind of colonial dynamics. Um, so to this extent, religion's integration into peace-building projects rearticulates rather than disrupts um, religion as a technology of division and control. So, so the question is how, wh where and how to identify the moments of disruption of this colonial logic. So back to the case study. So the tool of land titles or the Regalian doctrine that the Spaniard whose rule lasted uh, in the Philippines from 1565 to 1898 um, through the Regalian doctrine uh, they brought with them, uh, that they brought with them in the 16th century uh, to um, uh, together with the fact that the, the Spaniards labeled the internally uh, plural Muslim uh, population tribes as Moros, i.e. Moors, taking it from Spain, from home. Um, so Muslims and Lumads became dispossessed. And this is, this is what, what, what is at the heart of 
why in the 60s, the 1960s, you have the, um, um, the, um, the, 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 the violent resistance and, and kind of consolidating and emerging to the foreground. So because the Spaniards never attained total control of Moro lands, this process, which undermined Moro traditions, so there is a really deep uh, form of ep um, epistemic violence, uh, this process was accelerated under the post-1898 Treaty of Paris, which established, established the US administration, uh, colonial administration that lasted from 1898 to 1946, whose laws the laws of the American uh, colonial framework voided previous claims to Moro lands by their inhabitants, as well as their traditional and political associations with uh, regional sultanates. So very, very disruptive and violent moment. Uh, the minoritization of Muslims under the Americans and later through domestic colonization constitute the background to the eventual emergence, as I said, of the separatist uh, MILF. Uh, movement in the 60s and to the unfolding of bloodshed and massive displacement of populations throughout Mindanao over decades. So any kind of framing it as Muslims against Christians against Lumads is something that needs to be interrogated. And then what does it mean to then invest in interreligious peace building within that framework? Therefore, the opportune assimilation of the fault lines within both countries, Kenya and Philippines, into the Orientalist discourse of the war on terror extended the kind of the colonial logic into the post-colonial space through the importation of ahistorical conflict narratives and convenient culturalist reductionism. Muslim, Christian, Lumad, religious difference is not the root cause of violence, but rather colonial theft and domination are. Indeed, to gloss over the ongoing logic of the Regalian doctrine, the war on terror reductively and opportunistically shifted the analysis of conflict and to a civilizational plane trapped in kind of a historical and essentializing explanatory frame. This narrative inversion certainly feeds into the harmony business that locates the sources of violent conflict as if in interreligious misinterpretation, misrepresentations, othering, uh, and perverse understandings of the true message of faith, culture, religion, and so forth. And thus focusing peace building efforts on alleviating fears through a lot of investment and funded projects of what I call getting to know one another, which is a different version of saying, you know, the contact thesis or people to people. There are various names to that kind of understanding. So um, the peace building methodology I identified uh, involved, as um, you can see in this um, uh, slide uh, that uh, Catholic Relief Services um, let me use, capturing their like theory of change. Uh, as it's called. Uh, so it focuses on um, binding. The, it's called the three B methodologies. So binding, there are always like a lot of um, acronyms everywhere uh, in, that, in that space. <laughs> I need to go with like a cheat sheet kind of everywhere. So binding is a, a process of intra-subjective transformative work. Bonding, which is it's within your own community. So it's intersubjective uh, transforma transformational work within the community itself. Who are we? What are we about? What does it mean to be Muslim? What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be Lumadu? And putting it on usually 
on sticky notes in various kind of like workshops uh, that kind of capture the process. Uh, and then bridging uh, mechanisms, which is um, intercommunal action that is also uh, framed and, um, uh, and invested in, uh, in that notion that I referred to earlier of the dialogue of action. Uh, again, the action being, well, in this case, in the Mindanao, the, the key issue is resolving land disputes. So that's a tangible, uh, a t tangible result. Uh, it can be measured, uh, and it's indicative of the success of the interreligious work, which otherwise, if, if you don't have that uh, deliverable, then it's like, how do you know that if it was successful? So you have to have that <coughs> that project. Uh, empirical evidence that can be counted and measured. Uh, and then there is a lot of production of empirical data and research using the, the most advanced you know, prog uh, programs and, uh, and then it feeds back, it's kind of a feedback loop into the, the donor spaces and the, or the uh, epistemic communities, usually uh, in the, um, the global north. Uh, okay, so what we can see here is that the engine of change um, in a neoliberal fashion is located in the emotional labor associated with intra-subjective transformation and cultivating interpersonal friendships, trust, and, par and, and partnerships. So a lot of burdening of the individual uh, as, the, as, the key, as the key engine uh, of the change. Um, and so uh, this is um, an image of just a... Uh, uh, a closing, a lot of prayers and, 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 and engagement with one another in those spaces to resolve conflicts. Uh, and this is a closing ceremony of one of those uh, activities that I was a part of. Um, okay, so um, these foci um, are what ignite the peace building engine, the individual. This form of peace building delegates responsibility for achieving goals of peace and stabilization to the people who whose mere survival or resiliency is now re-articulated as expression of their spirituality. The spiritual, so, so what we see here in those spaces of trying to resolve conflict and getting to, getting to know one another and getting alone is invested in kind of a, there is a spiritualization of this practice that makes it even more, in a sense, effective. Uh, without going into the kind of the deep historical structural Root, roots of the, uh, of the violence. Um, so, and, and in the book I analyze this, kind of trace how it is reflective of a neoliberal rationality that in many respects depoliticizes religion while giving a sense of empowerment to individual participants. And this is one of the paradoxes that I kind of trace. Like it, it really, like when you read and we talk about the personal stories, the testimonies that people are giving about participating in various programmatic spaces like that, they truly feel empowered. For instance, in one of the, um, in the, uh, the CRS um, workshops, there is a lot of what uh, many women called legal empowerment. Now they know they, have, they are empowered to make legal arguments to get their land or to defend their land. Um, and so there is a sense of empowerment. So, so who am I coming from a decolonial uh, you know, theory perspective telling, oh, no, no, you think you are empowered, but you are not empowered. Uh, uh, which is one of the things that I constantly kind of really struggled with um, uh, in, in this context. So um, rather than analyzing um, 
kind of the, um, but, but what you see here is that we have kind of like a focus on problem solving rather than problem, problem posing to um, kind of invoke a, a Freire. Uh, we, we see um, that rather than analyzing matrices and webs of power, um, and ongoing legacies of colonialism, um, uh, the, the depoliticizing maneuver posits the supposed culture of violence as the cause of people's predicament of poverty, marginalization, and insecurity. So to, to combat the culture of violence, we have culture of peace seminars. They are very ubiquitous in Mindanao, along with peace zone and peace islands and a variety of other kind of concepts like that. Uh, and in the, in the book, I challenge and I feel very challenged by the prevalent metaphor of the seed of peace and, um, and peace islands. And, and that, that metaphor of seed of peace is something that I've thought a lot about before uh, because my work is very based, my other work is very based in Palestine, Israel, and also an industry of a peace, religion and peace industry, that, uh, and peace industry broadly that focus on the people to people and the, uh, this notion, the metaphor, the deployment of the metaphor of the seed of peace. Um, and so, so that's something that really kind of resonated with me. And, I, and, and as I was doing the research for a few years, I, in a different context that was not my context that I was deeply familiar with, it really clarified some things also with respect to Palestine, Israel. So uh, interreligious dialogue of action in Mindanao have included uh, the creation of zones of peace, or ginapaladtaka, uh, as they are called, which were initially created very organically amid violence and through the organic initiative of local communal leaders, such as Father Bert and of Pikit uh, in Mindanao. Father Bert experienced his transformation from hate, hatred. He grew up hating the Muslims and the Lumads. Um, to an embrace of interreligious peace building through his work in pursuit of what he came to understand as the mission of the church in Mindanao. So he tells the story of the church in Pikit as a story of transformation. Multiple wars between the MILF forces and the government resulted in destruction and massive displacement and an enduring, quote, silent war in the hearts of the local inhabitants, Lumads, Muslims, and Christians alike. Uh, and then he tells, he continues his story, the parish uh, at that time was divided on whether or not to extend humanitarian assistance to Muslim evacuees. Uh, it was only after a passionate debate that the parish decided to break down the walls of apathy, remember the command of Jesus in the gospel that tells them to love your neighbor as yourself, and the uh, exhortation of Jesus that whatever you do to the least of my brothers, you do it unto me." End of quote. As a result of this introspection, the parish organized mostly with young Muslim and Christian volunteers, a disaster response team, and Father Bert uh, remarked, quote, whether under the scorching heat of the sun or the purring rain and amidst uh, bullet fire, these young volunteers dist uh, distributed food to thousands of starving evacuees in various evacuation centers. We would eat together, pray together, and even cry together when we heard that another baby uh, had died in, in the evacuation center. This initial experience uh, led to the confirmation, and then he, um, he, um, he continued, 
uh, in his uh, uh, discussion with me that helping the poor is not a matter of choice. For us Christians in Mindanao, it is a duty and social responsibility. So this confirmation required the cultivation of a new inclusive vision for the church that underscored the centrality of two forms of ongoing and sustainable activity, interreligious dialogue and intercommunal peace building through the mechanism of the culture of peace seminars in multiple barangays, which is the kind of the administrative units uh, in Mindanao, uh, in the Philippines, um, and involving always multiple sectors. So in somehow the religious sector is not also the women's sector and the youth sector. So this is part of the sectoralization, is part of the manifestation of the, new, the operation of the neoliberal rationality in those contexts. And then he, he tells me the main objective is basically to plant the seed of peace in the heart of every person and to restore the broken relationship of people caused by extreme biases and prejudices. So what's the cause of the violence? Biases and prejudices, which uh, it's not to say that they don't exist, uh, but this is kind of where the tension resides. So the planting of seed thesis um, reveals the peace mission's reliance on pers per, um, perseverance and concrete projects to improve people's material lives, uh, meaning that if you are, it's uh, the correlation between hunger and extreme food insecurity and the propensity to, to violence. This is kind of like that correlative discourse is very operative. But also this, there is a process of sacralizing what I call kind of the Sisyphean labor of peace building, of this intercommunal work over and over and over and over and over on that horizontal uh, level, those um, uh, culture of peace uh, seminars. Uh, this survival piety, notwithstanding, the peace zone in Mindanao reveal kind of a mixed legacy of grassroots, broad organization that has coalesced to resist the realities of violence, but has also revealed the corrupting dimension of extreme development of um, external development money, as well as governmental co-optation and manipulation of the, uh, the concept of peace zone as uh, pacification rather than an opening for future relational repairs. So the peace zones emerge organically and then they became a business uh, and, and, and an instrument for pacification and keeping things kind of under control for uh, the uh, um, hegemony. So for Father Bert, however, the planting the seed metaphor cannot be critiqued away as merely a form of cooptation into a neoliberal fame and a harmony business. He defines his work and his spiritualization of intercommunal in the intercommunal space, in and of itself is a sacred space because it's so hard to get to it uh, in the midst of so much hate and division. Mike from a grassroots Muslim communal organization in the same region is one of Father Bert's Muslim allies. He expressed a similar sense of intercommunal solidarity as he reminisced about how when he experienced displacement, Father Bert had offered him a, a place to pray in the church. The fathers Bert and the Mikes of Mindanao are not the creation of the global NGO uh, world uh, that turned them into local partners or beneficiaries, which is the, the word I, I heard mostly. Come meet our beneficiary and this is, and so and so is our beneficiary. Um, and so 
so, so yeah, so this is kind of, again, just we articulate that same uh, tension. Uh, but those um, uh, channels do fund and create possibilities of those kind of relationship buildings that in and of themselves are very meaningful and people experience them very authentically as meaningful and transformative. So many of those projects, as I said, are driven by this neoliberal, neoliberal and securitizing uh, rationalities. But the agency and aspiration for creating peace through small islands or zones are organically connected to, Minden, to the landscape of Mindanao. And this is what I saw and heard over and over. Uh, so while these cross-communal relationships are deemed useful for devolutionary uh, peace mechanisms, or pacification rather, really strong tension between peace and justice, um, and, that are, and, and those mechanisms are more than happy to have their local actors or communities figure out a way to clean their own, pol their, their polluted uh, uh, rivers or dispose of their waste. Uh, this, is, this is the tangible, deliverable projects, the solidarity projects, is how can the community come together and be able to figure out a way to get rid of waste um, or, 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 or build a public bathroom or something like that. But the friendship that emerge in the context in those programmatic spaces exceed the neoliberal frame. And so I was interested in that uh, tension and dynamics and those rem uh, remainders. Uh, and, and this is uh, something that I am trying to trace uh, throughout the book. So these remainders where the, the relationship exceed the neoliberal gaze, the frame, um, and kind of the decolonial gaze of critique, this illuminates what I call decolonial openings to love um, as a refusal of hate and division, even if the very assumption of cultural and religious discourse uh, as the heart of the violence amounts to kind of a neo-colonial erasure of historical injustices and power differentials, as I highlighted earlier. So I met people whose religiosity and spirituality offered a resource for peace building and ethics of the common good and opening to survivalist rather than revolutionary uh, decolonial love that resists the forces of despair and division. Neither religion, culture, um, or, nor peace slash harmony in those contexts are um, intersectional or woke or feminist, uh, yet they work to reduce people's precarity. Um, and I, I personally was really challenged by that. Um, and so existence as resistance doesn't mean relinquishing uh, political and cultural claims. Still, it does reveal that the refusal to disappear and the active work on what decolonial thinkers call alter reality, uh, so imagining and rewriting materially new scripts future scripts, um, constitutes an agentic challenge to the neoliberal concept of resiliency as depoliticized adapti adaptability to ever worsening conditions and making that adaptability somehow sacralized, uh, which is uh, a, a real tension. Um, so the book finally illuminates a hopefully productive tension between critique seeking a horizon of revolutionary justice and the empirical realities 
and spiritualized practices of peace, survival, and non-revolutionary survivalist decolonial love. Uh, so I grapple throughout um, the book with these moments when the empirical evidence seemed to exceed uh, the gaze of my decolonial critique. Thank you. Well, thank you Sorry. immensely, Professor Omer. The, um, the layers of this book are, um, I think, unminable, I will say, uh, with the arenas that you've explored and helped to illuminate, and even further here in this conversation. One of the things I have deeply appreciated about all your work is your um, employment of a critical lens of reflection to illuminate the structures that are often invisible that function to limit the capacity for us to imagine something else. So the, uh, the challenges of what you continue to, to grapple with in your own work are, what does it mean that we have such good, people with such good intention on the outside functioning in ways that ultimately end up reproducing the very structures that we're trying to, uh, to dismantle and your work has always been focused on remembering that the deconstruction is only the first part of the work. That the deconstruction is to open up imaginative and illuminate other possible spaces. And this work is just so beautifully reminiscent of that and so grateful for it in, in context that, again, is outside of other arenas of your, of your authorship and work. I have. We talked about a few questions. I have like a trillion more. I'm not going to take up the whole time. We will, I'll ask a couple questions, and then we'll open up for audience. So please start to identify questions you'd like to uh, pose to Professor Omer. Um, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll go with our questions, just because otherwise we're going to go off in a, in a different uh, arena. Can you unpack the distinction you make between this? I think this is really, really central between, in the book, that you make between doing religion and knowing religion, because that, that unpacking, I think, is critical. Yeah, um, so thank you for the question that we agreed on. <laughs> <laughs> transparency, transparency. Um, yeah, I mean, this is what um, I've been struggling with for a long time. So, um, I've been uh, immersed a lot in the, the that kind of trying to understand the religion business, um, uh, and especially in that post-secular post mode, meaning that, okay, we, after the Iranian revolution, and then of course, with the push of the um, uh, September 11, all of a sudden, religion is something to be, as I said, you know, um, to be um, contended with, either to contr control and contain, so you need to know something about it. And of course, religion is a marked category. This is where the Islamophobic dimension uh, really comes in. Uh, or, but then, oh, there are a whole host of people that we can be useful because guess what? Most of the people, most of the people in the world are, you know, religious. Are so and there are, of course, by religion we mean institutions, networks. I mean there is a whole, uh, and so uh, if we want to, you know, vaccinate a community, we need to make sure that we get a buy-in from uh, from the, the the communal leaders who are often associated with churches, mosques, etc. So kind of the underpinning uh, logic here is a, is a functionalist logic, utilitarian logic, 
So it's not about like, I don't care what kind of like Jew you are. It's like, the question is, what can you do for me? Like, what can you do? Uh, and that generates, and I kind of also trace in the book, in the, in the various kind of programs that I studied, how, um, in fact, um, there is such a closure. So, so, you, so you have kind of the utilitarian um, approach to how to do religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so it builds itself as, oh, look at us. We are religiously literate because we engage with the quote-unquote religious sector. Uh, but in fact, uh, there, are, there is no hermeneutical openings, interpretive openings. And, it's, uh, and, and not only that, uh, uh, feminist, fem let's say feminist uh, uh, engagement with particular tradition and um, tra uh, traditional sources are often not useful and not helpful uh, and become some sort of either, you know, luxury, like, oh, we can't talk about, because everything is, is kind of um, uh, beholden to a realist framework, the right. realist utilitarian framework. Uh, so, um, uh, so, so there is no room and space for actual interrogation, engagement, hermeneutical work uh, that centers, you know, ma uh, marginalized voices within the tradition or what decolonial scholars call double, kind of a work of double critique. Um, uh, that, that, that provides opening. And in addition to this, there is also kind of double closures that, that can be identified. The double closure within the colonial context and the post-colonial context where communities are defined through religious affiliation, uh, which is, of course, also very, very relevant to, um, um, to Palestine, Israel. And, uh, but, um, um, and so, so, the, so communities are indexed to religious affiliation, uh, and, and so you, there, there is no possibility of writing a different kind of script that transcends, that is about solidarity, that transcends religious belonging, uh, communal belonging. Uh, and within that, uh, you have kind of a closure, the hermeneutical closure of about, about the knowing that is deep and critical and connects to the kind of work that you do, uh, Professor Moore, with a kind of a, a, a critical interrogation, historical, um, uh, uh, hermeneutical, and uh, account of, 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 uh, of religion. Well, thank you. I just, I, I'm so struck by just your, your comment here to say this notion of the, what can you do for me? What's the usefulness? And the connection then between the individuality that you pointed out and the nature of the individual becomes the, the locus of this agency. And again, without any, any power analysis, the, the harmonization, uh, harmonizing yeah. project uh, becomes when people say, well, what can you do for me with this belief that, well, all of us are for peace with this underlying assumption somehow that we all know what that means. And of course, peace then in this context means the uh, absence of direct violence. Yeah. So it, the whole thing is just continually re reinforced and reproduced in the ways that you articulate. Do you want to say anything more about the double closures around communal and hermeneutical? Um, because I think that's a really interesting entry into, again, unpacking these assumptions. Yeah, I mean, this was, um, yeah, I mean, in many respects, it's so um, um, devastating to see how um, I mean, the only, so, 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 so people show up and there, there is kind of a, a process of reduction of people's identities to their um, religious identification uh, that really precludes the possibility of thinking about power in complex ways, about moving power, about broad-based coalitions that, that, that uh, engage in 
um, economic analysis, political economic analysis. Um, and so, so, so conceptions of peace in many respects demonstrate how the colonial logic of division uh, won and continue to win, but now they are framed as, you know, oh, this is um, a repair, uh, a, a form of repair. So, so, so right. it's really hard to, um, um, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's a real, in, in many respects, strategy. And also as part of my research, and I didn't ended up not including the case uh, in the book, but as part of the research, I also um, uh, studied interreligious peace building um, programs, work in Bosnia. And uh, it was also devastating to see there uh, in the post-conflict um, moment how the genocidal logic won. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because of the, the utter segregation logic uh, that is operative in thinking about uh, peace. Oh, um, that is, you know, it's within the, it's according to that, those division of uh, the different groups uh, that in and of itself, you know, those divisions were introduced as a, as a part of the, of, of the war. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, of course, there were different, I mean, so the difference exists. It's not about not, no difference. Right. It's about this um, kind of segregationist logic. Right, right. And that, that maps onto your comment earlier in your, in your talk about how the cause of violence then is, cons is considered about bias and prejudice and not about structural issues that create the conditions for these forms of violence to per perpetuate it. So a really wonderful connection. Um, I'm gonna ask another question, but if, if we can, do we, do we decide we're gonna have a mic to circulate? If people do have a question, can you just raise your hand and, um, and uh, Rochelle will pass along a mic. But, um, and while, while we're doing that, can you, this intersection that you have spoken about very, very beautifully in this book and a little bit in your comments here, the relationship between the neoliberalism and the securitization of religion, I think is so key uh, in these times and playing itself out now very significantly in other parts of the globe too. So please, if you could yeah, uh, think so, more about um, that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, well, part of it is that, so we see, um, uh, over the, um, um, in, in the, the early uh, 2000s, you have a wave of scholarship and all of a sudden this discovery of religion um, uh, as something that was overlooked, the missing dimension of statecraft and et cetera, et cetera. So, and here we see, and of course, um, Elizabeth Chuckman Hurd writes really um, powerfully about that and others. Um, and um, uh, and, and so, so all of a sudden you have kind of recognition on the part of course, who, who are we talking about? We're talking about, um, the West, global North, um, and like, oh, we, we actually needed to know something about religion maybe, and because, you know, they were shocked by, uh, by all those events that presented themselves um, to them. Um, and um, so, so you have all of them like this investment uh, in research uh, on, to understand religion. And, um, and, and, and then you, it kind of manifests in various actual like um, work, and this is the post-secular moment. Mm. Uh, post-secular, but it, 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 it still carries all the, um, the presumptions and assumptions and normativity of the, of the secular. Because again, because it relies on the utilitarian uh, discourse. Right. Uh, and of course, it doesn't interrogate the international community's own embeddedness in particular normativities um, and proselytizing discourse and um, uh, itself. So, um, uh, so, so, so you have uh, investment research um, to, to to show how religion can be can can be useful, and then you have 
uh, the so-called, you know, the global war on terrorism that that recognize that that there need to be, um, um, you know, a certain understanding. Again, but the, the the main point is that it's it's a it's a securitized discourse. So if you invest in uh, uh, in religious communities, and again, this language of at-risk populations, um, uh, it's. It's not because you know you care about them, or it's not because you care about Muslim girls, uh, but because there is an understanding of um, there need to have like some conditions put in place uh, in in order to reduce fatalism, right. um, and uh, and and with the reduction of of fatalism uh, and a little bit of religious literacy in a sense of what I call kind of refer to in the book, um, I go in I, two chapters that really look at um, how hermen religious hermeneutics of good religion is deployed to counter message bad religion. Yeah. Um, and how different kind of like all of a sudden there is an investment that on the surface, it appears very democratizing because you say, oh, we don't need to go necessarily to the mosque, to the church, whatever. Uh, or and of course the people who are targeted are Muslim Muslim. Uh, we, we need to go to, social influencers, you know, uh, to, who can t counter tweet. And so have a little bit like, oh, this is how, so, so, so what we see is a process of, you know, um, uh, 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 cherry picking, you know, versus, or, you know, surah here, surah there to counter that, that you know, whatever ISIS is doing or whatever. Um, and uh, so, so we, you see a re reduction, it goes back to the other question too, the kind of reduction of what, you know, the tradition means it's a tweet. It's a it's a uh, it's 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 something that needs to be you know it's um, uh, branded. It needs to be to be put in a form of manual. This is where the neoliberal discourse comes in. Right. right. Uh, you have manuals, so religion is manualized. Uh, how do how do you you know how do you identify warning signs? How do you do that? How do you combat if if someone says tells you you know cites this surah, what surah are you going to counter it with? Uh, and that's not religious literacy. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, uh, and, and you have a lot of uh, uh, kind of the neoliberal logic of, you know, you have to take ownership of your own, you know, community. And you see the criminalization of parents and other kind of, um, or the potential criminalization or cooptation of parents and other kind of people in the space of social reproduction, teachers. Um, everybody is recruited into securitizing. Right. And again, it appears on the, on, the, on the surface of it that it's a form of investment in religion, like having like a religiously meaningful articulation of policies and programs and, uh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, no, I, I have to say, reminding me, I remember um, all of a sudden there was this new acronym that just emerged and was everywhere, CVE. Yeah, yeah. CVE, and I was like, what is, CV, what is CVE? <laughs> Countering violent extremism was the hallmark of, this, of a lot of the work in the yeah. State Department. And then, and then they added the P, um, the preventing violent ex extremism. But this it exactly captures the securitization of, because, okay, countering violent extremism, that's drones, you bomb them, you know. But then it said, oh, oh, maybe we should make sure that they have food. Uh, and, and this is where the preventing comes in. And then it's kind of, a, you, you bring into kind of the ecological, this is the discourse, that is like the ecology of extremism. Yeah. So how do we tackle that? But it's not about, you know, the, the point, kind of the point of origin here is the security of, you know, 
the securitization yeah, yeah. frame. Yeah. And that also within. includes how to, you know, the kind of, um, in both cases in Kenya and the Philippines, you have different kind of um, cracking down on madrasa education yeah. and, what, and right. curriculum, right. what's in the curriculum. Um, and again, co-opting, you know, bringing teachers in to kind of frame this, the, the curriculum, what do they study, it has to be standardized, and mm -hmm. has to be this, and it has to be that. And, and uh, interestingly, yeah. not uh, looking at Christian curricula around yeah. empire, but yeah. that <laughs> becomes part of the other. Yeah. I have another, lots of questions, but we have, I think, many more questions in the audience. So does someone have a mic? If you do, please, uh, can you just- Is this say, on? Yes, say okay. Who you are Hi. And, and your question, thanks. <laughs> Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, my question is about the role of anger in this. Um, you you speak about the relationships that exceed the colonial gaze, but also the role of the, the colonial expectation that there's bias and prejudice as root causes. And so I'm wondering if if there was anger visible to you intercommunity um, and how that manifested in those peace building workshops, but also if there's anger at the institutions that come in and at the you know neo-colonial neoliberal players that maybe doesn't get as much attention yeah no no thank you this is um many of the people i talked to because i uh most of the people i engaged with were already years and years and years immersed in this kind of sisyphian i mean a lot of it is just like amazing how you know they keep showing up and showing up in really hard time and um and, and, and I, yeah, I met people in different kind of, you know, places in terms of their struggle. Uh, but many people spoke to me as they reflected on their process about anger being very, and, and wanting, you know, to go join the rebels and then taking another turn because they saw their, you know, their whole family murdered in front of their eyes. And then, you know, they ended up not taking that route. Or some of them did. And then actually, um, 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 uh, Mike, the Muslim counterpart of Father Bert, he's uh, also called affectionately Papa Mike. <laughs> um, he, he, he was, I mean, many of them were uh, in rebels and engaged in violence uh, before they ended up. Uh, and so he specifically was, you know, talks about uh, those days where he, you know, was so motivated, uh, um, um, mobilized by, uh, by his outrage, anger, pain, um, and uh, so this is very present in their stories, uh, and, and which also deepens the uh, kind of the my own difficulties as I was, um, you know, immersing myself in this in this research. Because if you yeah, if you do come with kind of the systemic analysis, the global systemic analysis, and the decolonial frame. Um, you still experience a lot of anger <laughs> and because you see the amazing you know relationship and the energies that are being poured and truly transformative and and the friendships are real they're not like just you know a report of an ngo um and um uh and and, and you see the changes horizontal the horizontal and not any kind of vertical and structural mm -hmm. uh but and while there is the rhetoric about, you know, the scaling up, you know, the scaling up is the neoliberal way of saying seed of peace. I mean, seed of peace is also neoliberal, but, but the scaling up, uh, but there is no scaling up. And in fact, the more, the deeper those relationships are, the more it works <laughs> for the kind of the structures, yeah. the power structures to be, you know, to survive because other, I mean, they take care of their own garbage. Um, uh, and uh, um, or waste disposal, and 
Um, so with respect to the other kind of people who parachute in or out, but it's, it's, not, it's not exactly like that because you have kind of levels of many of the people who took me around, like especially in Mindanao, um, because I wasn't really able to go by myself a lot, to many of the places um, at the time, um, are local. I mean, are from Mindanao and themselves are, you know, <laughs> so close to the communities. Um, and uh, and they, are, they have kind of, like, many of them have kind of like, um, say, oh, okay, the buzzwords of the day is, you know, uh, girls' education. So we'll write the grant for the girls' education. So there is kind of that level of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, cynical engagement with the donor <laughs> uh, communities, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, you also engage with. No, uh, no similar, similar, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, do we have. Uh, I'm going to suggest that we uh, pass the mic to two other people, get two other questions on the table, because we do have to end uh, pretty much right at. Uh, 4:45. So, and then <laughs> I'll we'll try to. See. I'll try not to be verbose. Right, no. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I guess my my question has multiple parts, and it's been something I I was part of RPL's class last semester, and it was something that I struggled with throughout the semester, and I kind of heard also echoed in your presentation today about this balance between the reality of manualization of religion and neoliberal neoliberalism woo. <laughs> and um and in these pictures that we see that you know you shared with us you know we have indigenous um area community-based events and yet you also see uri in the background yeah which is based in dc oh, yeah, all those lo logos, yeah. yeah the logos you know and the reality of the un also being a part of it and the reality of us being an American institution, you know, also being there on the ground. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, you also have, I'm, I'm just going to bring in this amazing piece of work by the Tannenbaum Center, Peacemakers and Actions, which talks about knowing religion, you know, and how the people that do the work on that contact to contact basis are able to do it because, you know, of their religious drive, which is echoed in your work. And yet, even the Tannenbaum Center is American and all of this is so muddied and we can criticize it all we want and yet we're also contributing to it. And I was just, I was just wondering what is your own lived experience living in that gray beyond, beyond just, you know, pointing out that neoliberalism exists. Like how do you, how do you navigate it personally and then also professionally? And can we maybe pass one more one more question? I don't have time to answer even this question. But um, basically, first, thank you for the presentation. Um, so you, you talk about what seems to be at maybe well-intentioned efforts that lead to unintended consequences um, because of this frame that they, that they chose, a neoliberal frame and, and uh, securitization of religion and, and so on and so forth. My question is, in what ways it seems like you offer an alternative to look at power structures, or we can look, I can offer many other, we can, can look at the gender structures, we can look at other. So in what ways are those frameworks different? It, it, at the end of the day, this, this is another framework. So the first one is rooted in neoliberal philosophy, the second one might be rooted in dialectic materialism or Marxism or other. Uh, these are all different, or Hegelianism, I can't go into all these right now, of course, but uh, in what ways, to the extent we're looking for some sort of, of uh, good consequences, um, in what ways changing one framework with another won't, won't uh, stuck us in another 
uh, framework that has all the other, it has other disadvantages and advantages, but at the end of the day, we still get stuck in one framework. So in reality, how can we develop a more complex way to see different aspects of it and hopefully come with more, more uh, complex solutions? Because it is a complex problem and there's no like one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I know that we are running out of time, but um, so I'll just telegraph it that in, in the book, what I tr um, kind of um, look at the, the, the book, I see how uh, wh what I refer to as those relationships, those friendships that, that, that emerge, that consolidate, uh, but those friendships are not political friendships. So I want to, in the sense that political friendship, like what, you know, Danielle Allen works on political friendships and there is a whole other kind of, you know, literature on political friendship uh, that really center questions of democratic praxis and what, uh, what would it mean and what this, while those friendships are amazing and, uh, and so powerful and I'm not going to like be, you know, uh, dismissive of those, even though I have the power analysis, and the kind of broad kind of decolonial and, and, and post-colonial uh, uh, analysis, neoliberalism neo being just the current manifestation of a long colonial discourse. This is what the decolonial scholarship does. It locates the contemporary moment within kind of the broader kind of like uh, historical, yeah. you know, through historical frames. So neoliberalism is like, you know, the, the good news of today, uh, but, um, uh, but, but I, I want to kind of like, when I talk about, you know, change that is transformative on the structural and political level that, in, that provides possibilities of imagining the political outside of the, those double closures. Um, uh, those friendships need to, we really need to, I think there need to be more work um, on political friendships and what political friendships would mean. And what we see here are this notion, that this logic of the seed of peace and the interrelationality, the bonding and bridging and, and all this is about friendships that are not political. And not uh, defined as political. So yeah. it, could be, it could be an end or possibly not a neither or. Like we can maybe yeah. add other layers. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not in the business of offering like um, an antidote. Uh, you know, like the you know, in different kind of ideology. Um, uh, but I really want to think to 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 ask. Well, what does it mean to think to to center justice, um, including historical justice, redressing historical harm? Because this is what we see now. Those are the outcomes, not of. Prejudice to you know Muslims, Lumets, and as I said, but political <laughs> history. It's yeah. I mean, this the minoritization, the colonization, the utter epistemic violence. I mean, the destruction of the traditional ways of life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you how to redress it, um, and and then what you know what kind of processes need to be in place to to redress it. Yeah. So this kind of what what drives me rather than saying you know. Here is the, you know, the ideology that I want to, to talk about. Maybe I think I kind of like actually also in a sense maybe touch on it, but we con continue to talk of here. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think we're going to have to close, uh, sadly, but thank you. And can we again give a round of applause? Sponsor the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative at Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2024, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.